The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated. And uh, good morning and welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, it's good to be with you. We are continuing our sermon series called Acts, The World Turned Upside Down. And that name comes from Acts chapter 17, when a mob so angered by Christians coming to town says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And that's how they turned the world upside down. Despite the costs, they said that Caesar isn't the true king. Jesus is the true king. And that message, that Jesus is king, has been declared by the church ever since. And it's been turning the world upside down ever since, too. From the first century all the way to today in the 21st century. Now, as I mentioned last week, even though Acts is typically short for the Acts of the Apostles, a better name for the book might be the Acts of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Two major scenes at the beginning of the book are, first, Jesus lifting up his ascension, and then second, the Holy Spirit descending down at Pentecost. And these two scenes are really foundational for the rest of the book. All of the acts of the apostles are acts done through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So last week we looked at Jesus lifted up. Today we are going to be looking at the Holy Spirit sent down. Now, before we get into the main points of the sermon, uh, it's probably worth asking here in the introduction, what is the Holy Spirit? 
Or I should really say, who is the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a he. That's the pronoun used by Scripture when describing the Holy Spirit. He. He acted, not it acted. He acted. And so the Holy Spirit is a person. It's, he's one of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, in Acts 15.28, the Apostle Paul says that something seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to him. So things can seem good to the Holy Spirit, just like things can seem good to us. That's part of being a person, having a will. And of course, what the Holy Spirit wills is what God wills, because the Holy Spirit is God. As one of the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is God, fully God, just like Jesus is fully God, just like the Father is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but one way that theologians have systematized the work of each person of the Trinity is to say that the Father plans, Jesus accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies. So, for example, the Father planned for Jesus to die on the cross to forgive our sins. And then Jesus did the work of dying on the cross to forgive our sins. And then the Holy Spirit applied Jesus' work by uniting us to him so that our sins could be forgiven. And all the other benefits that flow from being united to Christ. The Holy Spirit applies. Now, back to our passage for today. Our passage takes place at the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival that took place 50 days after Passover. And so Jesus' followers are all gathered together in Jerusalem, as he had instructed them to be. But there are also a lot of other people in Jerusalem at the same time for the festival of Pentecost. And that's when something crazy happened. There was a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues of fire rested on each of Jesus' followers, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the moment that the Holy Spirit was sent down upon the church. And so we're going to look more closely at this event specifically, as well as the Holy Spirit generally. And as we do so, we'll have three points. They're listed for you in the worship booklet. First, wind, second, fire, and then third, tongues. And so let's begin with our first point, wind. Can you think of a time when you experienced incredibly strong wind? You know, maybe it nearly knocked you off your feet if you were outside, or maybe the building that you were in or the home you were in It began to make noises. It began to flex, began to shake a little bit because of the wind. Maybe you could hear debris blowing around outside, hitting the building that you were in. Could have been during a thunderstorm or during a tornado or a hurricane. You know, when was a time that you experienced wind so strongly? Well, our passage begins with incredibly strong wind. Verse 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. A mighty rushing wind. And even though I'm sure the scene was a bit hectic, uh, remarking that the sound was a light, was like a mighty rushing wind is no mistake. It wasn't an accident that that term was used because the Holy Spirit 
God's Spirit, has been associated with wind since the very beginning. The Holy Spirit explicitly appears in Scripture in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis 1, verse 2, we read that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was there at creation. And the word for spirit, used in the Hebrew of Genesis and the Hebrew of the whole Old Testament, is ruach, which means spirit, obviously. But ruach can also mean two other things. It can mean wind. It can also mean breath. And so wind, breath, spirit are all the same Hebrew word, ruach. These concepts go together, and they teach us about the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is like wind, which is invisible but can be very powerful. It's full of energy. And even though you can't see the wind itself, you can see the effects of wind. You know, on a small scale, you can see the wind animating the leaves of a tree, On a large scale, you can see the destruction of entire cities when a hurricane or a tornado rips through it. And so the spirit is like wind. But ruach also means breath. And so spirit and breath will often go together. Now, why breath? Well, because breath is life. If you're not breathing, you're dead. If you are breathing, you're alive. When God created Adam in Genesis 2, do you remember what he did? Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Breath is life. The breath of God, the spirit of God is what gives life. And so if we think of these two things together, wind and breath, the picture we get of the Holy Spirit is a life-giving power, an invisible but life-giving power. The Spirit brings life from nothing, just like God created all things from nothing. The Spirit can also animate the inanimate, just like when God took the inanimate dust and formed it together into a living creature, humanity, Adam. The Spirit can also take dead things, things that have died, and make them alive again. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, there is an amazing vision of the Spirit's power to make dead things come to life. This passage is referred to as the Valley of Dry Bones because Ezekiel has a vision shown to him by the Lord of a valley of dry bones, human Bones. It's like walking up on a mass grave or a long lost battlefield. There are just bones and skulls everywhere, and they're all dried up. They've been sitting there for who knows how long. Dead bones. And God says to Ezekiel, Say to these dry bones that I will cause my breath to enter them. I'm going to breathe on them, and they shall live. Of course, that breath is his spirit, the breath of God. And so Ezekiel, looking out over this valley of dry bones, says what God tells him. And as he's saying it, there's a sound, a a rattling, 
of sorts. And the bones start to shake and move. They start to lift up and come together bone to bone. And then there's tendons and ligaments forming on the bones. And the bones become covered with muscle. And then those muscles are covered with skin. But there's one thing missing. They're not breathing. And so God breathes on them. He puts his breath into them just like he did with Adam. And suddenly they all come alive into living, breathing humans. What once looked like buried remains of a losing side of a battle from centuries ago is now a standing, exceedingly great army. And God tells Ezekiel the point. God's people thought that their bones had dried up, that their hope was lost, that they had been cut off. But they were wrong. The Lord God will open their graves and raise them up from the grave. He will put his spirit within his people and they will live. Because the Holy Spirit gives life even to those who are dead. And that's what he did for you, right? Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ. And he did that by his Holy Spirit. And so if you're a Christian, if you've professed faith, if you're in Christ, you've experienced the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. He raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he will raise you again, physically, after you die. It was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and it will be the Holy Spirit that will raise you from the dead one day. And if the Spirit can bring life to your spiritual deadness, and the Spirit can bring life to your physical deadness, what area can't the Spirit bring life to? There's nowhere, right? There's nothing beyond the Spirit's life-giving power. But I suspect that there are areas of your life that might feel dead to you this morning. They might feel hopeless, like they'll never change, because dead things tend to stay dead, right? What needs a resurrection in your life? What could the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit resurrect for you? Are there relationships that are dead broken, that feel like they could never come to life again. Or maybe they're not dead, but they're just stuck in the same old patterns of dysfunction. And it seems like that will never change. The Holy Spirit can bring life to those relationships. He may even tend to use you to do so. Or maybe there's sin in your life, you know, something that has clung closely for as long as you can remember. Greed, or anger, or lust, or a lack of self-control, or a tendency toward drunkenness. Something that has entangled you and is killing you. And it feels like that will always be the case. You'll never shake it off. The Holy Spirit's life-giving power can kill what's killing you and renew you to true life. Or maybe you just feel dead. Yes, technically you're alive and breathing, but inside you feel dead sometimes. You're depressed. You're here this morning, but only because someone made you come. And you're tired of feeling the way that you do. And it doesn't seem like you're ever going to stop 
feeling the way you do, the Holy Spirit's life-giving power can bring you out of that dead feeling. The Holy Spirit can bring joy to sadness, sensation to dullness, hope to despair, water to thirst, bread to hunger. The Holy Spirit can bring life to where there's death. He raised Jesus, and he can raise anything. The Holy Spirit, wind and breath, life-giving power. But there wasn't only a mighty rushing wind at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit descended, there were also flames. So let's move on now to our second point, fire. In uh, verses 3 through 4 of our passage, it says that after the sound of rushing wind filled the house, divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire. We're going to talk about tongues in the final point, but what is the significance of the fire? Well, fire is significant for at least two reasons. Fire means presence, but fire also means power. And so first, presence. In the Old Testament, fire was time and time again associated with God's presence. When God was making his presence known, it was often through fire. When, uh, you know, so for example, when he made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and they cut all these animals in half, laid them out, and the two parties were supposed to pass between the animals, God had Abraham go to sleep, and instead a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. God's presence passed between the pieces. Or when God revealed himself to Moses and told him to lead his people out of Egypt, he was present in the form of a burning bush. And after Moses did lead the people out of Egypt and they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, the mountain was wrapped with smoke because God had descended on it like fire. And so clearly the fire is associated time and time again with God's presence. When God is present in the Old Testament, there's typically fire. And so when the tongues of fire appear in our passage in Acts 2, it's a signal that it's God's very presence, which is miraculous because the thing with fire is that you can't get too close, right? You know, you can look at fire from a distance and you can get maybe a little bit close, close enough to feel its warmth. But if you get too close to fire, you're going to get burned or maybe even killed, and that's how God's presence often worked in the Old Testament, right? You know, in one story, there's a man who touched the Ark of the Covenant and was immediately killed. Or consider the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. Only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. And he would wear bells on his garments when he entered so the other priests outside would know that he was alive while the bells were ringing. You know, and I don't know what happened if the bell stopped ringing and he died. This isn't in the Bible, but there's a, a Jewish tradition that they would tie a rope around the high priest so if they heard that the bells had stopped ringing, they could pull him out. So God's presence always had to be treated with tremendous care and respect, even caution. God's presence was good, but it was also a bit dangerous. But now in Acts 2, 
that same holy, glorious, dangerous, powerful presence was filling each and every believer. It was miraculous. It's still miraculous today. If if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. That power, that danger dwells within you. Do you realize that? That that's God's holy presence with you at all times. The same presence that had to be contained in the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant that consumed like fire anyone who approached it in an unworthy manner. That same presence is with you each and every day. Do you realize how amazing that is? Or do you tend to take it for granted? You know, when was, when was the last time that you acknowledged even that God's presence dwells within you? Did, did that come to mind at all in the past month, in the past week? You know, we normally don't give it that much thought, but imagine if one of Israel's high priests were here. And he found out that each and every day we experience what one of them got to experience once a year. He would shake you and be like, don't you realize how good you have it? We only got that from time to time. You get it every single day. It's a miracle. It's amazing. God's Holy Spirit is present with us. But a second significant aspect of the fire of the Holy Spirit is power. God is present with us through the Holy Spirit, and God is also empowering us through the Holy Spirit. You know, fire is obviously a source of power, of heat, of energy. It cooks food. It purifies. Fire is powerful. And there are several examples of God's Spirit empowering people in the Old Testament. Now, like I said, uh, the Holy Spirit, God's most holy presence, was not with every person in the Old Testament like we now experience in the New Testament age, post-Pentecost. But there were occasions where God would send his Spirit in a special and unique way to empower someone. So, for example, in Genesis, Joseph is the first person said to have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit empowered him to interpret dreams for people. That's how Joseph would know what the dreams meant. The Holy Spirit empowered him to interpret those dreams. And so they weren't even ultimately Joseph's interpretations. They were God's revelations to Joseph. And Joseph was given that power through the Holy Spirit. Or consider the book of Exodus. Uh, The Lord tells Moses in Exodus, uh, Exodus 31, that he has filled a man named Bezalel with the Spirit. And why did God put his spirit within Bezalel? Was it so that Bezalel could be a great priest? So that he could be a prophet? So that he could be a king or a teacher or an evangelist? No. It's so that Bezalel can be a good construction worker. So that Bezalel can be a good carpenter, a tradesman. Exodus 31.3 says, I have filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. So God gives his spirit to Bezalel so that Bezalel can help construct the tabernacle. And it's important that you remember Bezalel because I think you might assume that the Holy Spirit only empowers you to do super spiritual stuff. But the reality, 
is that all of life is God's domain. All of life is spiritual. And so the Spirit can empower God's people to do things like computer programming, setting up chairs before the worship service, teaching, preparing the communion table, being a therapist, singing, playing musical instruments, raising your children, being a custodian, doing research. So how might the Holy Spirit be empowering you to do all the things that you're called to do in a week? Remember Bezalel, the tradesman. If God sent his spirit to empower him in his trade, he certainly will empower you to do your trade, whatever that may be. There are other examples, too, from the Old Testament. The spirit empowered Samson and judges to kill a lion. The spirit empowered Saul to be king. Uh, God took his spirit away from Saul, actually, and gave the spirit to David after Saul had blatantly disobeyed God. And so this idea that the Holy Spirit would empower people isn't new, but what's new in our passage in Pentecost is that now it's for every Christian, not just some particular people for particular tasks. The Holy Spirit now empowers all of us. That's what Jesus promised in last week's passage, Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he has. The Holy Spirit empowers you. Now, don't be mistaken. This isn't God's power for you to use to do your will. This is God's power for you to do God's will. God's power for your sanctification. God's power for you to help build God's kingdom. God's power for God's mission. God's power for mercy and justice. Like, let's say that you have told a big lie to someone, your spouse or maybe your your boss at work, and you're about to be confronted. And you say, God, Holy Spirit, help me, empower me to talk my way out of this. He's not going to do that. And if you do manage to talk your way out of the lie, that wasn't the Holy Spirit helping you. But on the other hand, let's say you need to confront someone who has lied to you, but you're nervous or you're scared or you're not sure how to broach the subject, subject. but you know that Scripture in multiple places says to go talk to a person who has sinned against you. And so you know you're doing God's will by confronting them. That should make you confident that the Holy Spirit is not only present with you, but will empower you for that confrontation. And so you can be confident. You can take that step of faith. You can trust the Holy Spirit for that conversation. And of course, a key aspect of this confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit is actually knowledge of God's word. That's where we find God's will. You know, if you're asking, to, if you're asking the Holy Spirit to empower you to do something clearly laid out as God's will in Scripture, then you can have confidence he will help you. But you won't necessarily have that confidence if you don't know what God's will is, if you don't know what God's word says. You may actually find yourself assuming that you have empowering to do something that God has not actually laid out as his will and therefore isn't going to empower. A, a super succinct passage on this type of thing is Galatians five nineteen through 23. It begins... Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And so the Holy Spirit is against those things and will not empower you to do any of them. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit will help you to resist and flee those things. But the passage continues. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So again, the Holy Spirit is for these things. These are fruit of walking by the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit will empower you for these things. Now, I should point out, though, uh, there can be a little misunderstanding about that verse, the fruit of the Spirit. These aren't nine different fruits of the Spirit that you can work on one by one. Um, It's actually all one single fruit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruits of the Spirit are. And that's because these all flow from one thing, the grace of the gospel. You know, walking by the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit in these things is really all about the grace of the gospel taking root in your heart. The more that that happens, the more you will see all these things in your life. That's what the Spirit's ultimately empowering you to do, to let the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ take root in your heart so they can grow into a tree that bears this fruit to know the gospel, to feel it, to be moved and motivated by it. That's what the empowering of the Spirit ultimately comes down to, the gospel. The gospel for you, but also the gospel for everyone, for all peoples, for all nations. So that takes us to our final point, tongues. In the movie Arrival with uh, Amy Adams, There are aliens who arrive, who have a language that is not written linearly. It's written circularly or palindromically. And so Amy Adams' character begins to learn this alien language in order to try and communicate with them. And once she learns the language, it begins to alter her perception of reality to the point that she actually begins to be able to see into the future. Because she learned this non-linear alien language, she begins to experience time in a non-linear fashion. She can see the future. And the movie is obviously science fiction, uh, but it's making use of a linguistics theory. It's called the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis. And the hypothesis suggests that the structure of a language affects its speaker's worldview and cognition. You know, essentially, your perception of reality, your ability to interpret and understand life, is always relative to the language that you speak. You could say it's actually limited by the language that you speak. And so, a more simple example of this may be how, in English, we really only have one word for love, but there are four words for love in Greek. And so, each of those four words has a kind of different perspective or nuance or richness to it. So sometimes English speakers might have an overly simplistic understanding of love because of our language's limitation. We only have one word for it. Our passage in Acts deals with some of the problems or limitations that come, that come about because of language. As we read earlier, tongues of fire appear and rest on each of Christ's followers. And verse 4 says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so, because it was Pentecost, there were Jews from all over visiting Jerusalem. Devout Jews or Jewish proselytes, Jewish converts. 
uh, from all sorts of different nations. They were Jewish religiously, but had, you know, lived in different nations and learned different languages and took up, taken up different cultures. While they're back in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' followers to speak in the languages of all these people from other nations and languages. Even though Jesus' followers didn't speak those languages. Verses 6 through 8 say, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And what were they hearing? Verse 11 says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. It would be like this. I don't speak Japanese, but imagine if a Japanese speaker were here, and she did not speak or read any English, but suddenly I started speaking fluent Japanese, and she could understand every word that I was saying, and through my words, the gospel of Jesus Christ was clearly communicated to her. That's kind of what's going on at Pentecost in our passage in Acts 2, and it's a reversal of a judgment from a story in the Old Testament. Do you know what story this is a reversal of? It's a reversal of the judgment at the Tower of Babel, the confusing of the languages from Genesis 11. If you're not familiar with that story, essentially in Genesis 11, the whole earth speaks the same language. There's just one language. And, you know, people have started to settle in a plane, and then some more people settle in that plane, and then some more people settle in that plane. And with so many people together in one spot, they say, this is pretty great. We've got all these people. We all speak the same language. Let's build for ourselves a city. And in that city, let's build a tower, a tower so high that it reaches heaven. That will be what defines us. If we build the world's tallest tower, we'll have made a name for ourselves. And we'll never be dispersed over the face of the earth because we'll always be able to see the tower and make it back. But there were some problems with this plan. For one, building a tower so tall that it reached the heavens was a not-so-subtle way of putting themselves in the place of God, or at least trying to, because God dwells in heaven. But second, God had commanded Adam and Eve and repeated this commandment to Noah on multiple occasions to be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. But here at the Tower of Babel was a way for the people to not fill the earth. They built it so that they wouldn't be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so they built it in disobedience to God's command. And so what did he do? He confused their language so that no one could understand one another's speech, and he dispersed them over the face of the earth. They began to speak different languages and live in different places and form new cultures. So back to Acts 2 at Pentecost, the telling of the mighty works of God in other languages is a reversal of the judgment at Babel. But we need to qualify what kind of judgment this was, or what kind of reversal this was. First of all, it was a temporary reversal. Pentecost was a special event. It really happened, but the ability of the disciples to speak in foreign languages didn't continue forever. 
this special enabling of the disciples that allowed them to witness for Christ to the nations was in anticipation of a future reality that will one day emerge. And so at Pentecost, this is a temporary reversal of the judgment at Babel. But secondly, it's not the reversal you would expect, right? It almost seems like an incomplete reversal. Like, if God was, you know, conferencing with you ahead of time, and he told you that he was going to reverse the judgment at Babel, at Pentecost, you would think, awesome, just like everyone spoke one language before Babel, you're going to make it so that everyone speaks one language again now. But that's not what God does. Why not? Why didn't God just reinstitute one world language at Pentecost? That would have made global missions a whole lot easier, right? Why not one language, one nation, one culture, one ethnicity? Well, it's because one nation, one culture, one language isn't enough. You see, God said that everything that he had made in the Garden of Eden was very good, but he didn't say that it was done. He didn't say that it was finished. He didn't say that it was complete. There was still work to do, work that God gave Adam to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. The garden was good, creation was good, but it wasn't done. And do you know what the garden didn't have? It didn't have a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual choir singing the praises of God. You see, the true Israel, the true church, the true people of God are not defined by a single tongue or single culture. The people of God are defined by a single spirit, the Holy Spirit, which unites all together no matter where you live, no matter when you live, no matter what language you speak, no matter what culture you come from. One spirit unites us all. And we need people who speak other languages or come from other cultures because no single language, no single culture is enough. No single culture, no single language is enough to fully describe the mighty works of God. No single culture is enough to fully display the glory of God. We need every language. We need every culture. That's why the Spirit coming down at Pentecost, that's what the Spirit coming down at Pentecost is all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for every nation. It's for every tongue, not just Jews, not just Israel, every nation, every language, every tongue, every culture. And so if you've ever felt looked down upon because the language that you speak isn't the most common one, if you've ever felt like because you come from a different culture or background, you're second rate, nothing is wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with your language. Nothing's wrong with your culture. God planned for you to speak that culture, speak that language. God planned for your culture to reflect his glory. Something is very good about the language you speak or the culture you come from. That's why one culture and one language isn't enough. Because God made your language and God made your culture. God sent his Holy Spirit like wind, 
like tongues of fire to make sure that people like you, people who speak your language, people from your culture, would not only understand the gospel, not only understand the mighty works of God, but also proclaim the gospel, tell others about the mighty works of God with greater nuance, with deeper richness, with more perspective than only one language or one culture could. That's why the Spirit came at Pentecost. Let me close with this vision of heaven from Scripture that we're reminded this week is a far cry from today. A vision of our future hope where language and culture don't divide, where language and culture aren't reasons to invade other countries, where language and culture come together in a beautiful tapestry to more beautifully and fully declare the mighty works of God. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with a palm branch in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Great multitude that was uncountable, from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every spoken language. Asians, Europeans, Africans, Middle Easterners, Latin Americans, Jews and Germans, Serbians and Bosnians, Russians and Ukrainians, with one faith, one God, one Lord, and one Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you want to be near us, that you've sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to be with us, to empower us. Father, we thank you that you have raised us from death to life. You will raise us again as you raised Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we're not left to our own devices, to our own power sources, but we have your Spirit to fill us and empower us. Father, may we take up this mission of declaring your mighty works in whatever language you've given us, from whatever cultural background you've given us, so that the world may f- more fully know your mighty works, they may more fully know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this message would go forth and bring peace and justice in this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.